Welcome to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you by the Board of Conscious Capitalism in Connecticut. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also to business owners, startups and entrepreneurs. The Curious Capitalist is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. Never miss an episode again and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts from. On this episode of The Curious Capitalist, I'm excited to be speaking with Heather Terry. Heather is the founder and CEO of Good Sam Foods. Now, aside from her work with Good Sam Foods, Heather has been a CPG mentor, angel investor, chief strategy officer at Beyond Brands and an accomplished author. She's been busy. Now, Good Sam Foods is a story of farms, family, food, people, and the planet. And I'm excited to find out more. So Heather, welcome to the Curious Capitalist podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. I'm so happy to be here. I always like a big dramatic entrance to our podcast. I feel like I'm about to announce an Oscar nominee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was an actor for a long time, so that would be appropriate. Before I was a food entrepreneur, I was an actor and I started my first food company uh, doing a show on Broadway, interestingly enough. So that's kind of a random piece of my story. How amazing is that? That's incredible. But let's find out a little bit about how you've ended up at this point in your career. I am very curious. So tell me a little bit about life before Good Sam Foods and and how Heather has got to this point in your career and in your journey, I guess. Like I said, it's an interesting journey. I didn't get here the way most people do, which is, you know, out of a school project or coming out of college or, you know, knowing that I was going to be an entrepreneur in any way, shape or form. Though, interestingly enough, I think as an artist, I was an entrepreneur. I just didn't think of myself that way. You know, when you're in the arts and especially for those of us that were, you know, I was an actor, you know, you think about the fame, you think about the television show, you think about, you know, Broadway, all of those things. And you don't really think about running it so much like a business. And what I realized in retrospect after my acting career was just how much I had learned about being an entrepreneur by being an artist and being an actor. I was not selling physical product in the same way that I do now. I was selling my vision for a character, right? And when I really started to put those pieces together for myself in business, that was a really interesting moment because I had really struggled early on in my entrepreneurial career. I founded a company called Nibmore Chocolate back in 2008. And Nibmore- Yeah, Nibmore still exists today. I'm very proud of that. My equity partners took it over, but uh, my investors who invested there, but I was always faking it till I made it. You know, I was, I was really of the mindset of like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And when I finally put together that I had been really acting as an entrepreneur for so long in my life by selling, you know, those characters that I was creating, that was a real game changer for me. So I was an actor for my whole life, an actor and a singer, and I had big aspirations of doing Broadway and I did, and I was on television and I did commercials. And then the 2008 housing crisis happened and it was really tough 
for actors, artists, um, anyone who is working in the arts in general. And you really saw, you know, actors coming down from television and film into the theater. And then those of us that were in the theater or doing, you know, guest roles and, and things like that were getting pushed out. So I knew I needed to change course. I'd been on a couple of TV shows and I was starting to feel the wear of waiting tables and doing that kind of thing. So I had always really enjoyed cooking and my dad was terminally ill with lymphoma for about 11 years from when I was 11 until I was 22. He died when I was 22. And he was very curious about food with his illness, but very resistant to it. And so I went down the path of really figuring out, you know, how food was medicine. And when I started teaching cooking classes, when the housing crisis happened, I was teaching mostly my acting friends because, you know, money was tight and people were like, I need to stop eating out. I need to start kind of taking care of myself and saving some cash. But what I started to realize was that chocolate in particular was always on the menu and dark chocolate in particular. And that was really how Nibmore was born in my apartment in New York City with a lot of feedback of my actor friends. I claim blatant ignorance. I was a total fish out of water entrepreneur. I had no idea what I was doing. I learned how to make chocolate on YouTube when there were like 10 videos on YouTube back then. <laughs> um, and I ended up starting the company with a woman named Jennifer Love, who's still a dear friend. And we started moving it forward. And, you know, I learned how to make chocolate on YouTube. I took an Excel spreadsheet class in the middle of Manhattan. I was really trying to make something work and I had no idea how I was gonna get there. I was really lucky I had a partner like Jen to steer the ship because I don't think we would have made it. And you know, it took me a long time, Claire, to learn the things that I needed to know to be successful in the CPG landscape, right? So for me, it took uh, many years, you know, I, was, I had Nipmore for seven years. And then after that, I consulted for primarily female owned brands, helping them raise capital, helping them get their financial house in order. And then I ended up at Beyond Brands and Beyond Brands was started by Eric Schnell and Marcy Zeroff, two big industry heavy hitters. Marcy Zeroff, as a matter of fact, uh, coined the term eco-fashion in the 1990s. And she's sort of the OG of that category. And Eric Schnell, who started Steez Tea, which was one of the first organic beverages on the market. So I joined their partnership and I started consulting with them. And one of the first projects that came across my desk was called something completely different, but it was this concept out of the country of Colombia. It was a husband and wife team and they had aspirations of moving product out of Colombia because the war had ended there in 2017. Mm -hmm. So I had never really thought about Colombia and I had done a lot of work in the food space, but I wanted to give it a go. And when I got there and when I finally got there and I finally showed up for the first time on the farms in real rural Colombia, that was really amazing and it was very eye-opening and life-changing and it's the reason that i drove this concept forward for the last three years so that's kind of how i got here wowzers what an unusual story to get to this yeah. point i love the idea that chocolate fueled a lot of this uh, i am a self-confessed chocoholic i'm not gonna lie of the milk variety though being a brit we, we have terrible calories, <laughs> Well, I've got some white chocolate chips coming out for you in the fall. Claire's now you've got my attention. I'm now there, there with you. you. 
So, you know, you've kind of had to pick yourself up and you've had to kind of learn as you go along. I've got a amount of respect for people who... It does feel like entrepreneurship sometimes is kind of fumbling in the dark a little bit in the beginning until you hit that rich vein of where you're, you know, best able to use your skills. But you had to teach yourself an awful lot along the way there. Yeah, I mean, for me... And, you know, I think that's something kind of worth talking about because it's something that I keep talking about with a lot of entrepreneurs and I have investments in other businesses too. And I think that's the one thing that, you know, it seems really glamorous. You watch Shark Tank, you, you know, you hear about people leaving their jobs to go pursue their idea. And it is it's a really romantic view of it. And of course, I skipped over many, many painful parts of the journey. That's part of growing. That's part of getting to the one that works for most of us, right? The unicorns are just extraordinarily rare. They're it's almost impossible, you know, and we only hear about those stories. We don't hear about the people who have had to do it 10 times, you know, until you're struggling through something and then somebody's like, Hershey started 15 times before he, yes, that is true, right? He started many, many times and failed many times before Hershey's became Hershey's. But no one talks about that until you're like really down in the dumps and you're, you're struggling and then you're like, oh, really? That... I'm not supposed to just have started this thing and it be the next big thing. No, it, for most of us, that's not the way it is. And for me, you know, what drove me forward in the food industry, food, beauty, you know, all the things that I've touched over the last almost 15 years is that I believe, especially in the food system and even in beauty where I've played a little bit as well, um, that we can fundamentally change many things through the food system. Food is one of the things that we all have to eat. We all have to eat. We all have to eat three times a day. We all snack. They're, you know, we're all going to eat every day if we're going to survive. And, you know, 30% of all carbon emissions in the United States are due to agriculture. And we're doing a very poor job around the world taking care of smallholder farmers, family farmers, all of it. This is something that's plagued me my entire career since I started Nipmore. But I also knew that the food industry could be different and that if we worked hard enough and if I stayed in it long enough, it would reveal itself to me. And, you know, that's really the work that we're doing at Good Sam. Everything that we do is with regenerative farms. So there's a ton of biodiversity and we pull whatever is commercially viable off of our farms that we work with. So for instance, our coffee and our cacao come from the same place. We're also working on a honey project within those farms. We have macadamia, avocado oil, um, mangoes, and additional coffee coming from Kenya, all from the same farmers, all from the same farms. We only work in a direct trade program, so we bypass fair trade groups. We're, you know, nothing against the fair trade groups, and I say this a lot, you know, when you're small and you're a small company and you have to use those third-party certifications, great. It is what it is. You maybe don't have the buying power, but we have the buying power at Good Sam, and because we have that buying power, we take that 1% that we would have otherwise paid fair trade organizations that typically goes to a lot of bureaucratic elements of running those organizations, and we put them directly back into our farmers, their communities, their families, their farms. We help grow them because we need them to grow alongside us, right? And then we play on consumer trends. So, you know, it's not an overnight thing to get to that, Claire, right? It took me a long 
time it to figure out like a journey. It does. Yeah, where the problems were, right? Where are the problems and how can they be solved? And when this project came to me and I saw it for what it was, I thought, wow, what an opportunity to take everything, every pain point in the industry that I have seen and create a system that people can really believe in. The Curious Capitalist podcast on behalf of the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter is created and produced by Red Rock Branding. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to and share this podcast today. I want to go back to what you said about your father and your first interest in food. You know, it's something quite close to my heart as well. I also lost my mom to lymphoma and it really is the old adage, you are what you eat. And not just on a a health perspective, but the impact that we have with how we get our food, you know, how our food is grown, how it is stored, how it is shipped, how it is packaged. I mean, just the impact is huge. It really is. What's your take on, on, I guess, the journey that it takes from the earth, if you like, to your kitchen cupboard? Yeah, it's a long journey, and I think it's one that most people don't think about a lot. Um, we take it for granted. And Claire, I'm so sorry to hear about your mother. Um, of course, I've lived that. I've lived through that as well. Um, when we talk about food, you know, and we talk about a packaged good, and we talk about commodities, typically commodities that come from different parts of the world that we enjoy so much here in America, right? We enjoy coffee and chocolate and macadamia nuts and avocado oil and all you know all those things they do not grow here right (laughs) the first thing we have to recognize is that some of the things that we really like do not grow here and they will never grow here though climate change is trying really hard right so the first piece is to recognize there are things that i can purchase locally that make sense in our ecosystem, make sense in our agricultural system, and I should support that, and I should uh, support farmers in the United States over that. Great, awesome, that is one box, right? But when we're talking about commoditized items like we sell at Good Sam, that is a different journey. You know, they are typically, when we talk about these highly commoditized items like cacao, coffee, macadamia, nuts, fruits, seeds, oils, right? We're talking about Typically within line of the equator, when I say we work in places like Kenya, Colombia, Bolivia, I mean, we're we're talking about it's much higher temperatures, um, typically not well-structured governments, right? We've got a lot of issues across the board. So we're dealing with not only climate change, we're dealing with politics, we're dealing with government, we're dealing with, you know, poverty, we're dealing with a lot of different things when we think about these types of commodities. So when you pick up a chocolate bar, right, and you are sitting, you know, or you're looking at the chocolate bar set and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm gonna buy a chocolate bar and I'm looking for the cheapest one, you know, that's where I would caution you. And I use chocolate as an example because it's one of the easiest examples. Chocolate is a commodity that's pushed down a lot. West African cacao engages in slave labor and child labor. It's why I've never sourced West African cacao. There's a lot of corruption, especially in Ivory Coast and Ghana. And when you're buying cheap chocolate, you are 
definitely 100% contributing to the slave trade and to human trafficking. That is just a fact. It is a fact that every major chocolate company on this planet does not want you to know about, especially in the United States. And Claire, I think you're from the UK, right? Yes. Okay, so in the UK, they're light years ahead of us on this topic. You know, you cannot purchase a chocolate bar in the UK unless it is at least fair trade certified, right? So not to say that there aren't problems within those supply chains, because there definitely are some that have been revealed, but there's a lesser chance of it happening, right? So when we think about food and we think about a packaged good and we think about where it comes from and who it comes from, the supply chain is rife with problems. And as consumers, we have responsibility in that, right? Don't believe all the marketing hype. Don't believe everything everyone tells you. It's just like the internet, everybody. The food industry is the same way. Every industry is the same way. If they can get away with it and they can get away with not telling you what it is, (laughs) they will get away with it. Just assume that. Assume that's happening in packaged goods. Assume that's happening in in even fresh goods, right? Ask a lot of questions and demand transparency. That is one of the, the biggest things you can do as a consumer, you know, when I had Nibmore, we did a rebrand where there was a hand on the package. And a lot of people found that odd. They were like, why is there a hand on your package? It was a hand that was holding a piece of chocolate. And it was an ad agency in New York City that had listened to me, you know, drone on about this stuff for hours and hours and hours, days and days, months and months, you know, all of it until they came up with a design. And one of the things they said that inspired that design was me talking about how, you know, when you go to the grocery store or you purchase something on Amazon or you purchase something on a platform like a Thrive Market, you are sending a message to that marketplace and to the brand of, I accept this. I'm willing to put this in my cart, digital or physical. I'm willing to accept it. I'm willing to eat it. I'm willing to give it to my family, my friends, as a gift, my mom, my grandmother, whatever. But I accept this. I am purchasing it and I'm accepting this. We as consumers actually have a lot more power than we think. Our everyday choices actually matter a lot more than we think they do. Going to the grocery store is not a benign action. It's really not. And you know, you just sort of raised a question in my mind. Do you think that the American market, along with other perhaps less legislated countries, if you like, do they need protecting from themselves? You know, you mentioned obviously that there are rules in place, certainly in Europe, to try and reduce the amount of responsibility, I guess, put on the consumer's shoulders when they hit the supermarket. I mean, I look around And I'm astounded at some of the things that are available here. Do you think it's a good thing that the European Union, I guess, the food agencies in in Europe are protecting people via that legislation? And is that something that you need in the US or is it just a case of educating people to purchase things, you know, using their brain, not just the being suckered into the marketing and you know, getting taken for the point of display stands at the till and get the cashier and uh, buying it. I know how we feel about big government coming in and all that, like half of the United States, fine. Just put that aside for a second. Here's what I'm gonna say to you about it. Hey, listen, listen, I think the government stepping in or legislation protecting human beings from themselves is a good thing. Had they done that, perhaps the UK would still be part of Europe, but they gave us the vote 
<laughs> and and look exactly. what there. it's like a child like don't give a child a knife who's never used one and expect them to do the right thing with it it's a great you know. analogy but let me say this about it okay because i know again in the u.s you know we've got one side and the other side one side says i don't want government in my choices guess what guess what here's what i'm going to say to you you are being lied to do you like being lied to do you like being lied to because there are blatant lies in what some of these large companies are selling to you. And there are lies of omission, right? It's like um, if your husband is cheating on you, but he, if he just didn't tell you he was cheating on you, like that's a lie of omission, right? So he's like, well, I just didn't tell you. Like, I wasn't really lying. I just didn't tell you. Okay, well, guess what? You're lying to me, right? So I think we have to reframe it in our minds, especially when it comes to food, because you know, as Aristotle said, you know, let food be your medicine. And food has a lot to do with our health, our well-being, our long-term longevity, um, our greater health goals. And when we are being lied to about our food, whether it be blatant lying or the lie of omission, I would argue that someone needs to step in to set the ground rules, right? You know, it's so funny. A lot of times people say to me like, I don't want to know, Heather. I don't want to know because then if I, yeah, because if you know, you can't yeah. unknow, that right? Ignorance is it, bliss thing, isn't it? It's yeah, if you see it, you can't unsee it, right? But open your eyes, you know, yes, the cookie with, you know, hydrogenated oils and 15 different colors and it tastes great, but what will it do to you long-term, right? What will that do? And I think we have freedom and we have all of that, but that doesn't mean that we should be lied to. We have to demand more than that from companies, from government, from founders, CEOs, spokespeople. We have to demand more than that if we want our children and our children's children to have a fighting chance on this planet that we are literally lighting on fire. I couldn't agree more. It's accountability. That's what it is. It's accountability. I have a one-year-old son and uh, he was born here in the United States. And when it came to choosing formula after breastfeeding, it was formula time. I was terrified at what I read. I did the research because obviously yeah. you know, it's a baby. You want to do the very best you can. I was absolutely terrified by what I was reading. And it was really difficult not to come across as some kind of like food dictator. But the FDA guidelines and the European Union guidelines are very different, very, very different. And I get the impression that a lot of people think that they're buying well if it costs a lot of money. The reality is look at what's in what you're, you're eating and what you're feeding. And it, it terrified me to the point that, you know, we imported formula from Holland, funny enough, it's the best formula in the world. I did but the same thing. It blew my mind that it was acceptable and the way in which it was marketed. It just felt so disingenuous. And it was like, you're lying and you're misleading people into making purchases. And, and it made me feel quite morally sick that it was allowed to happen. And it's like, people need protecting from themselves. They really do. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we don't know what we don't know, especially in this country. And I think it's a controversial topic. And one that, again, that we should be angry about. We should be angry about the guidelines that are set here in the United States versus what is set in Europe. We should be pissed off to no end what we are allowed to consume here when there is data and information that has allowed other countries, like every country in the EU, to say no to certain things that we are still allowing in products in the US. 
Yeah, you wait, stand by. We're going to get a lot of letters and emails now. I'm going to get absolutely hammered, but I stand by it. I stand by it. Go on, send your emails. <laughs> so, and I will tell you about the, the formula if you email me, by the way. And back it up with data. So, let's talk a little bit about how you source your raw products to make your foods. You know, how do you go about that? That must be an arduous task to ensure that you aren't buying into slavery and awful working conditions and, and all of the other things that come with your raw products. How do you source reputable farmers? Yeah, so it's a real combined effort for us and it really depends on the country that we're operating in, Claire. So what Good Sam does is um, there are countries like Colombia that are a little bit more difficult for us to navigate alone. And there are countries like Kenya that are far more easy to navigate. And I use those two countries oftentimes as, you know, my big examples, because that those are the two countries we source the most from right now. And we're expanding into Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Mexico, and Ghana. But Colombia and Kenya have been real strongholds for us as a company since the beginning. So in a place like Colombia, the way we source is we have a co-manufacturer. We have a couple of co-manufacturers, but one main co-manufacturer in particular who works with us on the ground. And we're able to navigate more easily because of them. We're doing regular audits. We're showing up on farms. We are running our direct trade programs alongside the association. So just so everybody knows, our direct trade program, we come with suggestions to the associations that we work with, but oftentimes they are like, wow, that sounds really great. Like it, that sounds like an awesome project, but what we actually need is X, right? And I think that's always really interesting because they always win and we're always there to support and we try to bring in only local, you know, people who, carpenters, uh, tradesmen, materials, so that things are very easily maintainable. And I think that's a big difference between us and maybe more philanthropic work that other organizations are doing. So we have uh, employees in every country that we work in. We have employees that audit regularly. We have partners who audit regularly. And we are dealing with you know, many, many farms and many, many people. But with that said, I think we do a really nice job between our teams, the associations teams, the cooperatives teams in every country that we work in, really validating the supply chain and making sure that the regenerative farm elements are there and that the direct human trade, you know, capital piece of that is on the straight and narrow, right? Because Slavery for us, when we see human trafficking in places like West Africa, that is a non-starter for us. We steer clear of those markets completely. Not to say that it couldn't happen in Latin America. We've seen no evidence of it, and that is very encouraging. And I've been working in Latin America since the beginning of my career, Central America and Latin America. It's not as much of a problem there. We have other problems to deal with in places like Colombia, like <laughs> coca and, you know, different things happening in the countryside that are distractions from, you know, our main business, obviously, that we don't want farmers getting involved in. And it's like, it's a little different, right? It's a little different wherever you go and you're understanding those risks and understanding those problems and saying, okay, how do we make sure that we're not seeing any evidence of this, obviously? And also, if there are infringements, which of course to date we haven't seen any evidence of, we know there are other companies that have had problems, especially in West Africa, you know, how do we deal with those? And then on the direct trade side, you know, how do we fund these associations, cooperatives, and individual farms to grow? right, based on what their needs are, not what we think their needs are. Because for us, you know, I think 
after George Floyd and, you know, everything that happened early in the pandemic, and we did a lot of diversity training on our team, we realized that, you know, a lot of companies, it's very philanthropic and philanthropy is fine. I don't think philanthropy gets us very far. I think getting money to be used the right way in order to grow businesses and to show opportunity is a way better path to, you know, really creating sustainable businesses and keeping young people on farms or coming back to their family farms to continue those family businesses. You know, oftentimes people say to me like, wow, Heather, you're so nice. You do all of this. You give all this money to these people. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm really great. I'm trying to grow their businesses. If they can't keep up with us, I'm dead in the water, right? So yes, maybe I'm a nice person, Claire. I think I'm a nice person but it's not the reason that I'm doing it. I'm not doing it to get a medal, pat on the back. Wow, you're awesome because you did that. I'm growing businesses, including my own. Yeah, and you're growing side by side, which is, you know, gives you such an interest, not only from a being a conscious capitalist, if you like, but also from a straight capitalist point of view is that you, you need their product, which does lead me on nicely to how did you first hear about conscious capitalism, certainly here in Connecticut? Yeah, so Conscious Capitalism has been a group that I've known about for a long time, obviously knowing I was part of the industry in the the heyday of Whole Foods and Whole Foods really becoming a leader, going from a handful of stores and moving to something bigger. And so knowing that John Mackey had a hand in starting Conscious Capitalism, certainly his book and all of that, that was very interesting for me. You know, again, I think when we think about Conscious Capitalism, we can't just think about the conscious part or the capitalism part. We have to think about both together. And I think that's what the cohort and the chapter here in Connecticut, I think it's always challenging that. It's like, okay, well, yes, you have to do all of these awesome ESG things, but like you have to make money too, right? I think sometimes when people come into the into entrepreneurship and they start new companies, they go one way or the other, right? They're either greenwashing things and they're just they just care about the top line or they're going all in on the mission and they're not paying attention to the money part. And when you fold those things together and you start looking at more holistically and you start surrounding yourself with people who have that same vested interest at heart, it creates conversations and shifts things in your business that are really, really important. The Curious Capitalist podcast on behalf of the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter is created and produced by Red Rock Branding. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to and share this podcast today. Tell me a little bit more about the culture and leadership within your business. We know with your employees, with your stakeholders, and what language would you use to describe it? I mean, look, I think I'm very lucky. Maybe not lucky. A lot of the people who work for me have worked for me for a very long time. And those people that are newer to me are now already three years old, right? They've been with me for three years and stayed for three years. Um, I think they are extraordinarily passionate people and they really believe in this mission and they really believe in this way of doing business. I don't think you can work at a company like Good Sam unless you believe that you can marry these concepts together and come out on top. And, you know, my team, especially my core team, you know, who I call my core team, my higher ups in the organization, some of these people, are newer, they're younger, and some of them are much older and have been around the block many, many times. 
And I think what's so cool about seeing, you know, somebody like a Marsha Bell, you know, who's older and has been in this industry for over 25 years, and then somebody like a Tom Den Hartog, who's our, you know, guy, one of our guys on the ground in Columbia, who's 28, right? But like watching them care about it for the same reasons helps me to understand that this conversation is not just about Gen Z. You know, I think people who are older tend to really use that as an excuse not to do the right thing. Well, this is a Gen Z thing and Gen only Gen Z cares about this. I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people care about what we're doing and the concepts around what a company like Good Sam is doing. And I think we have to stop making that excuse. It's so disappointing to me, Claire, right? It's so disappointing for me to hear people who have been in the industry for a long time cast things aside and just say, oh, well, like that's just the way it is. Well, when you started and you had your first business, you know, I watch this happen all the time with, you know, guys and girls who've, who've done this so many times and watching them default into that pattern. I just, I think that's pretty crazy because I think these concepts really transcend every generation. You know, look, I also, and this is maybe me going off on a tangent a bit, but like, I also find it terribly alarming and I won't name names here. You know, there are a lot of companies abandoning things like organic and non-GMO and, you know, saying they're doubling down in places like fair trade when they don't really understand it. And they have advisors and investors who know better, right? You know, for the natural products industry, which is typically a very conscious part of the industry to allow it and to not fight for the things that we have fought so hard for in this, you know, mini recession or whatever it is that we're heading towards. It's just to me, as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, it's just simply not acceptable. The planet is on fire. People are being taken advantage of. The wage disparity in the world is a gap that is so wide. If we don't do something about it, we may never recover from it. Absolutely. And food in countries like the United States, it's like the ingredient lists are dumpster fires. So why are we going backwards? right? Why aren't we moving forward? We know better. Many of my counterparts know better. They just do. And they're falling into old patterns, old behaviors that don't make any sense to me. And I would challenge anybody who's listening to this, if you're considering those things, to consider there are other paths and to think outside of the damn box already, right? None of our choices as business owners and leaders should lead to anything going backwards. We should always be moving forward. So the chasing of a dollar bill at the mm -hmm. cost of their original mission and their original higher Absolutely. purpose. Yeah, it's, Absolutely. Uh, I hope it's not a growing trend, certainly with the economic climate as we are at the moment. Hopefully, hopefully they'll get back to their roots and remember what put fire in their belly in the first place, so to speak, the passion. Absolutely. So, okay, last couple of questions before I sure. let you off the hook, okay? <laughs> I'm going to ask you just generally, okay? If you met with somebody, they had a company or a startup, and they wanted to make a shift towards being more conscious in how they did business, what would mm. your advice be? Start with one thing. Just one. Because I think when we talk about ESG, when we talk about better for you, when we talk about third-party labeling, when we talk about you know, conscious capitalism, they seem so big, right? And I think we have to take a little bit of the pressure out of that and say, if you're at this place and you can do one thing, 
there's an obvious thing for everyone, right? There's one obvious thing that you know should not be the way that it is and that you can handle very, very easily, right? Start with that one thing. And then once you have that one thing under control, go to the next thing. And then the next, and then the next, and then the next, step right? Step at a time, step at a time. Absolutely. One step at a time, because especially when you have something that, you know, you feel like, oh man, I can't, you know, for instance, I have a young company that I'm an investor in and they were looking for cocoa powder. And they were like, Heather, we feel like this is the one thing. Like we can buy it from Good Sam and we know that it's ethical. We know that it's transparent. I was like, great, this is the one thing. Like this is the one thing you can do right now for this one product line that you can talk about and say, we can't do it with everything right now, but we're working on it, but we did it with this one thing, right? And then when you see the response to that, and I think that's what's so cool too about ESG concepts, transparency, sustainability, when you do it and you see your raving fans applaud you for it and buy more and want to see more from you, you understand the intrinsic value of making those changes from the capitalistic point of view, right? Yes. So it, it's not only a feel good thing, it translates to those numbers and that then gives you the power to move on to the next thing. Absolutely. And it's having that patience, isn't it? And having that belief sure. that you're on the right path to be able to transition, if you like, from that one thing to the point where Absolutely. your bottom line starts to rise. Absolutely. So come on then, tell me, when you're not saving the world, you know, sourcing raw products from some of the most beautiful countries on earth and racking up some air miles, I'm sure. What do you do when you're not focused on your work? What do you like to do to relax? Or are you just always fighting the good fight? <laughs> well, I have an eight-year-old who's awesome. And oh, that's what uh, you'll be doing then. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of baking projects and books to write and movies to watch and all of that. And that's awesome. And I, I have a really good time with that. And yeah, I do travel a lot. I try to show my daughter that, you know, women can do anything. Girls can do anything by truly leading by example because I want her to know that women can do this too. There are very, very few women in the field who go out into the field and spend time with farmers and spend time in rural areas. Any woman who's listening, who's been thinking about it, please join us. There are very few of us, but we want more and we are happy to welcome you. I'm also a really avid reader. I read a lot and my team knows this and they're always shocked with how much I read. I love reading. It's been with me since I was a really little kid. I love making playlists <laughs> that I share with my team and all my friends. And, and it's kind of a cheesy part of me, but, but I have a really good time doing it and it spreads some joy. And so this so is a no judgment zone here. I'm yeah, still known yeah. uh, from back in the day, it was mixtapes for every friend to mix yeah. CDs. And uh, now it's playlists, yeah. of course. I think I'm, I'm getting swindler. old. Yeah, the other thing is clearly I'm not a big stuff person, but I'm a big food person. So if you asked me to choose between like cashmere sweater and like a dinner at some amazing chef's restaurant, I'm going chef, right? Because I love that experience. I love trying new food. I love seeing the, the, the world through the eyes of someone who can express it with food which is part of the reason I do what I do. You know, part of Good Sam is is a little bit of my expression through food and all the things that I think are important about it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really cool. What would you say has been your greatest success, both professionally and personally, and why? Oh, well, professionally, it's this company for sure. I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to do the work that we do and lead the team that I'm leading because they are exceptional. So that for me, I think is a great, great honor every single day for me. 
and it really does, even in the worst of times or when we're having a struggle or something's going wrong, I still feel very accomplished and very successful running this business in particular. That has been a great, yeah, such a high for me in my career. On the personal side, I think, you know, it sounds cliche maybe, but you know, my daughter is, it's funny when I hear things come out of her mouth and I know she listens sometimes to my calls and <laughs> she watches my travels and is always eager to get into my phone to see all the pictures when I return. Aww. You know, having her understand that there's so much more to life than what's immediately in front of you, I think is a really great personal accomplishment for me with my daughter. My mother did that for me as a child in exposing me to the world and putting me on airplanes. And my family is all from Poland. And my mom did that for me when I was nine, when communism broke in Poland. And I started traveling there alone as a child with family meeting me on the other end. You know, I hope to give my daughter a little bit of that because when you do really feel like that you can go out into the world and do good works, I think that's where it all starts. I think that's where a lot of good things stem from is saying, if I go out into the world and I can do good works and I can collaborate with people and I can have empathy and I can do something that moves the needle for someone, somewhere, some way, I think you have purpose in life and I think you can do anything you want to do. Without a doubt. And when you have that purpose and you start to achieve within that purpose, the sense of contentment is where it's at. And to lead by example for your daughter, I take my hat off to you. And I know what you mean about them being a sponge. Some of the things that I'm having repeated back to me now is just terrifying. Yes. It's like, do I really say that? <laughs> oh my God. And sometimes the inflection too, I don't know if oh. you get that, but the inflection. <laughs> he has obviously not quite developed his accent. So we're not sure whether he's going to sound American or British. Oh boy, oh boy. But I know that no is categorically in an English accent, as is, let's go. He says, let's ah, go. Whenever we leave the awesome. house, he's like, oh, it's me. So no, it's good fun. And it is most definitely not a cliche and a, and a great personal success. Now, I've loved chatting to you today and just getting a small insight into the passion and the fire that you've got for what you do. I, it's one of the joys I have in this role for the Conscious Capitalism chapter here in Connecticut is I get to connect with people like you who are actively changing the world on a daily basis and it is nothing more enlightening than that. So Absolutely. if, like me, people want to get in touch with you, they want to connect with you, find out more, how can they get in touch with you? So you can follow us on Instagram at Good Sam Foods. And then for me personally, it's Heather K. Terry. You can reach me on Instagram at Heather K. Terry. And um, what about LinkedIn? You're on LinkedIn as well? Yeah, LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. LinkedIn's fun. Awesome. You heard it here first. Do check out the incredible work of Heather and her team at Good Sam's Foods. It's been an absolute privilege chatting to you today. I really hope that we get to do a little revisit of this one, maybe in a year's time, and see how things have grown and, and how perhaps you're navigating what is going to be a little bit of an unsettled economic climate for a, a little while at least. So it would be great to reconnect. Yeah, well, let me tell you, Claire, in the housing downturn in 2008, you know, we were terrified to start Nip More. And uh, the one thing we realized is that people will always buy lipstick and chocolate. So um, I at least have that going for me. And I think coffee too. I think most people will buy lipstick, chocolate, and coffee. So I'm feeling pretty good about where we are. I've got to be honest, a chocolate and me, honestly, if you ask my family, I mean, obviously I have a British palate, so I'm mocked regularly for the food that I find desirable. I get absolutely torn apart by my family, oh like my craving well, sausage rolls and, and some very bizarre things, but chocolate. Yeah. I was a kid. 
is my steadfast. I, I feel like I'm a bit of a connoisseur in the world of chocolate. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really wonderful and such thoughtful questions. That was a great interview. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege. Until next time, Heather, it's been great. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Curious Capitalist. If you would like to find out more about conscious capitalism, or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding, redrockbranding.com.